PBS documentarian Ken Burns turns his lens to the American buffalo and reflects on what it means to the American identity. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday the 13th of October, and this is In the Moment. For decades, Ken Burns has kept the vision of a documentary about the American bison in the back of his mind. Now that film's time has come. Ken Burns joins us to talk about the new documentary and why the idea stuck with him for so long. But first, we talk college readiness and ACT scores with the VP of Enrollment at Augustana University. And no, parents, it's not too soon to be thinking about next fall. And later, how the arts impact South Dakota's economy. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. You're on the moment, news is first. And I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. It may well be a dark and dreary fall day where you are today, but in some parts of South Dakota this weekend, it could be a, a little extra dim. On Saturday morning, South Dakota will see a partial annular eclipse. Hank Fradel is a member of the Black Hills Astronomical Society and joins me by phone now to talk about this planetary phenomenon. Hank Fradel, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jackie. Uh, so tell us, start at the ground level for us folks, pun only sort of intended. Uh, what's a annular eclipse? What does that mean? Well, an eclipse is where the uh, a solar eclipse is where the moon is between the Earth and the sun, and it blocks some of the light on the, the path of the eclipse. Uh, on the annular one, what happens is... Uh, the moon is far enough away from the Earth where we can still see a little bit of the ring of fire, they call it. Whereas for a total eclipse, the moon is close enough to the Earth, uh, like during those supermoon days, mm. uh, where it totally blocks it out. And so uh, things get dark. <laughs> um, tell us what areas of South Dakota we might have the best shot of uh, seeing some of what's happening tomorrow morning. Anywhere in South Dakota. Uh, that uh, has a clear sky. Uh, it looks like here in Custer, we're going to be, uh, uh, we're hoping to have clear skies. It's looking pretty good right now. And uh, what you want to do is get outside. If you're in the Black Hills area, you want to be out there about a quarter after nine, and you'll see the moon start to come across. But it's, it's going to uh, last for over two hours. And so the peak here in uh, uh, the Black Hills is going to be at around uh, 1035, 1036, right in that area. Mm -hmm. And it'll last until about 1 o'clock. If you're over in Sioux Falls, uh, it's going to start about uh, 1025 or so. And uh, the mid-eclipse will be about 1144. Yeah. Um, is this a situation I remember a few years back with eclipse and this idea of totality? Are, are we in that line in South Dakota, or is this going to be a kind of a partial uh, blockage of the sun that we're planning to see? Well, I looked it up uh, months ago, and <laughs> I would have had to gone to Four Corners area. To, I think that was about the closest area uh, to see totality. Sure. So we're here in Custer, we're going to be seeing, I think, around 74 percent of an eclipse. Mm. Uh, you get down to Sioux Falls, it's a little bit less because the path of the eclipse is heading uh, in a southerly direction. So, uh, But they're still going to get quite a bit. Right. Talk to us about how to safely view an eclipse like this. Yeah, it's really important because uh, you look directly at the sun and uh, you'll lose your vision. Uh, 
<laughs> it's that simple. Uh, that kind of ruins the, the party. <laughs> well, it does, you know, and it just makes for a bad week, you know. <laughs> uh, what you want to do is you want to find some ISO certified eclipse glasses, and they're they're pretty cheap. But, you know, you're a little bit late right now unless you can find some place that will do it. Uh, some people like to uh, talk about using welding helmets. Uh, the problem with welding helmets is that the the glass in those have different shades to them, and you need to use something that is a, about at least a shade 14. And I understand even with that, uh, you shouldn't stare at the uh, solar eclipse very long. Uh, if you're in a jam and you don't have any uh, way to look at it, uh, do a search online. They have pinhole kind of cameras that you, you can poke out a hole in a little piece of paper and project it onto another piece of paper, and you can kind of see the eclipse forming. It's, it's kind of cool. Hmm. Uh, one, another uh, option is for uh, some of the communities are hosting uh, solar eclipse parties. And, for example, here in Custer, the county library is hosting one uh, starting up about 10 o'clock tomorrow. And uh, they've got some glasses for the uh, people want to show up to take a look at it. Uh, I'll be showing up with my little telescope and uh, a holder so people can hold their uh, uh, cell phone up to the telescope and take pictures of it, maybe take a picture of the, of the uh, eclipse home with them. Awesome. Hank, in our last minute or so together, what's your favorite thing about <laughs> an astronomical event like an eclipse like we're about to see tomorrow? I tell you, I was at the 2017 eclipse that uh, was pretty big here in South Dakota, uh, some friends of mine and I, we went down to Carhenge down in Nebraska, and we were there with all the propeller heads and the guys with uh, tinfoil hats, and uh, <laughs> uh, it was pretty amazing. I tell you, uh, it's just, uh, it's almost indescribable. The uh, uh, the colors change. They, they kind of lose their shine. Things get real quiet. The wind stopped. Birds stopped church chirping. Uh it, you know, everybody kind of cheered when it went dark, but then all of a sudden everybody got real silent. And for that couple of minutes that it happened, it was just a, a magical kind of time. It, uh, it was amazing. And then as soon as it pops back out, all the birds came back, the colors came back, and it was like, uh, what happened here? Hmm. Wow. The annular eclipse is happening Saturday morning. That is tomorrow morning. South Dakota will see a partial eclipse. We just heard from Hank Fradel, a member of the Black Hills Astronomical Society, how you can safely view that and your best chances. Hank, it's a pleasure to hear your passion about this. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. The average ACT score in South Dakota has been on a downward trajectory for the past few years, but our average is much higher than the national numbers. My next guest is here to talk about trends in college testing and admissions. Adam Heinitz is the Associate Vice President of Enrollment at Augustana University, and he joins me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Adam Heinitz, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jackie. So uh, you work in enrollment. This is, this is, you know, ACT. I remember when I was getting ready for college, that was the big one. And I've, I sense, especially with the pandemic, that's been a little bit of a shift in the role that that plays in college admissions. Give us just kind of the 10,000-foot the view of what you're seeing at Augustana. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, test optional was something that was really sort of on the up and coming uh, trend prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic forced schools 
uh, really to approach that uh, in mass. And so, uh, and I think that that ship has somewhat sailed. Um, colleges, for the most part, are going to remain test optional. And so that's impacted the number of students who are testing. Uh, it's impacted the test scores to some degree as well. And so um, colleges are still kind of trying to find their way in how they evaluate students. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, maybe some of what you've seen in, in some of the ways that we're looking at students now. Yeah, certainly it's a much more holistic approach. And so um, you'll see, and this is true of our state institutions in South Dakota, um, but true of Augustana as well, where the test is now an option uh, for students to su submit. But um, grade point average um, is a key factor, so looking at their grades, but also looking at other factors that might be part of their application and, and part of their story. Uh, the incoming class of 2023, uh, in particular, they were freshmen during COVID um, and when it began. And so they were impacted, certainly academically, and, and there's been a little bit of a struggle to recover from that. And so, you know, we're, ha we're having to look at things a little bit differently now. And, um, and so I think you've seen that in the, you know, in the release that came out this week about test scores and, and their decline. Yeah. So I, I want to take a look at that release from the uh, South Dakota Department of Education. Uh, South Dakota students earned an average composite score of 21.1 on the ACT, which is above the national average and the highest in the region. Uh, you're going to have to remind me that max score on ACT is that's 30-something. It is. It is a 36. I know I didn't get that. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, not many do. Not many do. You know, nationally, um, actually, ACT scores are at a 32-year 32, 32 low mm. um, across the nation. And so really, you know, South Dakota has declined a little bit in the last five years, uh, but still performs well compared to the rest of the Midwest and really the rest of the nation. Mm. I think there are a few factors involved in that. Um, we have a South Dakota Opportunity Scholarship in our state that still requires an ACT. Mm. So students still value that um, because of that if they're looking to, to go to an in-state university like Augustana. And so um, they take it seriously and more a higher percentage of them are testing um, with the hope to still get that scholarship. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in this, you know, 30-year scope nationwide of these declining test scores. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe I'm making this up, but the sense is that, you know, 30-year enrollment in college would be on the upward swing, and yet these test scores are going down. Do we have an idea of, of what the relationship is there, why that might be happening? Well, there, you know, enrollment overall, there's been a little bit of an ebb and flow, and, yeah. and certainly nationwide, we're actually, you know, in the midst of a decline of students attending four-year colleges and universities, mm. which would be the schools that would require uh, test scores traditionally. So, um, so that's a factor, you know, maybe fewer students or um, smaller percentage of students considering four-year college education um, is, is part of the formula. I think, you know, changing demographics of our country, certainly. Um, part of the reason that schools had started to look at test optional policies prior to the pandemic was um, because there was a sense that there was maybe some some bias in the testing. And so as as the demographic and the, uh, the shape of our, our country, and, and certainly this is true of Sioux Falls and South Dakota as well, um, has changed. Uh, that has impacted uh, testing and test scores as well. Right. Because the thing with these tests is, for, from my recollection, the test costs money, any test prep costs money, whether that's a class or a book or any number of things. So it's not yeah. necessarily the most neutral ground yeah. when you're looking at those opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, students are, are still allowed to retest and uh, colleges now do what's called super scorings, where you can take portions of each test and kind of combine them for the best score. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's incentives to retest, um, but that that doesn't come with the same access for everyone because there is a cost uh, yeah. for the test. So if if you're a, a student or a parent that's looking at their uh, their first college bound child uh, uh, going there next year, and we know that ACT is test optional, 
how do I decide if I go for it or not? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and and part of it is knowing your student, knowing mm-hmm. knowing your child, and but also knowing you know where are they looking and what are their requirements. And so, uh, you know, my recommendation for students um, is that you know they can take the test without sending it to a college as well. Uh, so so they do have that option. Um, to see where they're at. And, and because we have scholarships within our state that are tied to that, I, I do encourage students to consider taking it. Um, but at the same time, um, we're looking at so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at really the full picture of what a student could bring to our campus community. And ultimately, and I think this is true of, of all of our colleges, hopefully, um, you know, we're looking for the right fit for students. Mm-hmm. And that's one can be one small piece of the formula. There really, you know, there aren't bad colleges, maybe there are bad fits. And, uh, and so that's a piece to, to maybe let a student know, like, am I, am I ready? Am I prepared um, for this next step in, in this institution? And you can learn about colleges and um, kind of what the average scores are, expectations are of scores at those colleges to see, you know, where you may fit in um, yeah. relative to their average. Yeah, I'd love to hear you say more on that, finding the right fit and that advice as students are making that step. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many factors that go into fit. Um, certainly, you know, your academic interests the community, the size, um, financially, that has to be a fit as well. And so, you know, and colleges are looking at this very differently. It's a very competitive market because there are fewer students going to college um, and so many factors changing in our world today. So um, so colleges are adjusting to that too. Uh, and so, you know, we our, our role in, in admission at Augustana, uh, we have admission counselors. And really, we take that counseling part seriously because we we really want to counsel students on finding the right fit. And, and hopefully, you know, in our case, that's Augustana. Um, but it's really helping them think about what does it mean to go to college? What am I looking for? Um, what is higher education, really? Yeah. Uh, and what does it mean to me? And, and where will that set me up for my future? And so um, it's about so many different factors, all unique to each individual. So, um, and, and the ACT is, is certainly, you know, one thing that colleges have held on to a little bit because it is even, you know, um, every high school is different. Uh-huh. Students have different access to AP classes or elevated classes or extra support. So, yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we look at all those factors. Yeah. My guest has been Adam Heinitz, Associate Vice President of Enrollment at Augustana University in Sioux Falls. Adam, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to join you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in today for Lori Walsh. Ken Burns is one of the most acclaimed and influential documentary filmmakers of our time. His work includes the Civil War, the Vietnam War, the Roosevelts, an intimate history, and the U.S. and the Holocaust, to name a few. His latest project is The American Buffalo. This four-part series ambitiously covers 10,000 years of history centered on the giant of the plains. From its near extinction to miraculous conservation, Ken's film series looks beyond the buffalo and to the people and environments that depend on it. Ken Burns joins me now by phone to preview this new documentary. Ken Burns, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for having me. I do have to amend what you said. It's just two parts, totaling four hours. Two parts, totaling four hours. That's more manageable for folks' schedule, so I appreciate that correction. Exactly. Um, uh, this is an idea that has had uh, some staying power with you. I understand the kind of initial seed of this came about 30 years ago or so. Um, yeah, it, at, le- at least that. Yeah. And, and what about this story uh, kept it in your mind as you worked on so many other projects in that time? Well, you know, the bald eagle is a national animal, and it is an important and, and symbolic one. 
and of course reached the brink of extinction itself in the early 60s and helped galvanize a modern environmental movement. But the buffalo is the most important animal in the United States um, in terms of our history. And so we'd always thought we'd like to do a, quote, biography, unquote, of, of, of this largest of the land mammals in North America, knowing full well that it would provide us with a new lens, a new way of seeing um, the history of Native Americans who have had uh, such a long history, perhaps 600 generations, 10,000 years, 12,000 years, with this animal, which they use completely from tail to snout for their sustenance, for their tools, for their weapons, for their clothing, for everything. You were born into a buffalo blanket and were wrapped in a buffalo shroud. And how that, and, and, and the buffalo also figured in a central way in their uh, religious life, in their spiritual life, in their, even their creation stories. And so it, it was a breach when uh, market forces and other imperatives uh, nearly destroyed the buffalo. We think there were 70 million before Columbus, at least 35 million at the beginning of the 19th century, the 1800s. By the end of the Civil War, probably 15 million. And 20 years later, you couldn't find one, period, um, in zoos, in private collections, but wild and free, maybe 100, and most of them in Yellowstone and subject to poachers. So it's one of these you know, great tragedies. It's actually part of the largest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world that takes place on the Great Plains, not just uh, bison, but grizzlies and elk and coyotes and wolves. Um, but it's also a story of of how we save the buffalo, the motley assortment of people who, for various reasons, good and bad, decided to save it. And now it is not in danger of going extinct. It's It's actually a wonderful, and I think at the end of the trail, a hopeful story. Yeah. Um, in, in kind of a tangential or alongside that uh, mass slaughter of the buffalo, that was in many ways also a, a tool of subjugating the indigenous populations that relied on the buffalo. How did you... And that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant by other imperatives. That's right. exactly right, Jackie. Yeah, how, uh, so, how, how did you, you know, approach that? Well, I, I think you, directly, you know, we're not in the business of, you know, putting our thumb on the scale. We don't have an agenda. We're storytellers. And storytelling is how human beings communicate to one another. So the facts matter. And while it wasn't actually printed, a policy of the United States, published policy, um, it was articulated by everyone from the top down uh, that if you killed the buffalo, which was, you know, right now in huge demand after the Civil War, leather was our fifth largest industry. The belts of the machinery that ran the new industrial revolution depended on the supple hides, and hide hunters descended on the plains, uh, central, southern, and northern in in by the thousands and killed buffalo by the millions. But people also, not just wink-wink, said if you kill the buffalo, you're killing the Native American. And certainly tribes people did starve, but it made them much more docile and able to be sort of placed into reservations. And so the, the film is a sort of a sober-eyed look at, at all of that. 
Um, and then just a wanton, a waste of it. The hide hunters just took the hides and left hundreds of pounds of meat and the head and the horns and the hoofs to rot. Uh, and, uh, and then later on in, in one of the flabbergasting sort of whiplashes of this story, the chemical industry, the nascent chemical industry, finds that the bones are very valuable. and People actually made more money going out and collecting the bones, and people have made have seen the man standing on mountain of buffalo skulls and bones. The largest industry in Detroit was the Michigan Carbon Works, grinding up the bones to use in different concoctions. And so, you know, it had a market demand, but it also knew that you could put pressure on the native people as uh, Manifest Destiny began to fill up the Central Plains in what had normally been just sort of a pass-through area. You know, you went to California for gold or you went to Oregon for land or you went to Santa Fe for commerce and you didn't stay there, but subsequent generations were inhabiting the plains and that meant the people, the dozens and dozens of of nations that had existed there for 10,000 years had to get out of the way. And the buffalo was a way to control it since they had used every part of the buffalo for their sustenance. And, of course, it was at the heart of their spiritual practices as well. Hmm. Uh, in, in keeping with the idea of storytelling, I have a story for you. I promise it has a question at the end of it. But I wanted to share the that I was an intern with SDPB when the Vietnam War, your, your film series, The Vietnam War, was released. And we had the opportunity to interview many Vietnam veterans around South Dakota in connection with that project. And one of those veterans was Rick Thomas, who we met at a screening uh, on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. And he shared with me about the courage that he learned, not just from serving in Vietnam, but also from facing his trauma and addiction at home in the aftermath of that. And he said, being of the Sioux Nation, he says uh, that they are buffalo people. Domesticated cows turn their backs to a storm, but buffaloes turn into the storm and face it to go through it. And I have never forgotten that. And a similar idea is at the top of the second part of the American buffalo into the storm. Because this is so central to identities, um, both as a nation and individual identities and philosophies, what have you taken away from the experience of finally putting this film together? Well, it's been incredibly moving. We had expected it to be a tough story to tell, and it is. Um, that mass slaughter, the greatest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world, is on our watch. You know, we're, we've got to somehow own it in a way without, you know, the inevitable uh, other stuff that comes with that. I, I, I was just su- supremely moved by an understanding of the dislocation, the separation, the trauma, as if all of a sudden, in an instant, our commissaries, our grocery stores disappeared, but so did our churches and our synagogues and our mosques and our temples, you know, suddenly disappeared. Now, that analogy is not quite exactly right, but the buffaloes occupied such a central position in the spiritual teachings of almost every tribe and their rituals and their prayers, their connection to nature, that that being severed has been devastating for Native peoples, not just in, in terms of losing their original homeland or being confined to reservation, being forced to adapt to the cattle people's way and not these elegant equestrians of, um, of, of the prairies, um, you know, feasting on 
the buffalo, which is a much healthier meat uh, for them, leaner and introduced. And so many of the problems we see associated with the, um, you know, on the reservation are often come from not having a kind of uh, a, a connection with their original diets, their original life ways, and food sovereignty is a good part of why there are now certainly many NGOs attempting to try to create large habitats for bison, but also 80 tribes in the Inter-Tribal Buffalo Council, which have now herds of their own and are trying to rematriate to even farther eastern and other direction tribes, uh, this animal central to so much of their lives. I, I would just, one asterisk, and I think most Americans don't realize this, that Native Americans fought um, and died in larger uh, percentages in the in the Vietnam War than any other um, so-called minority. Mm-hmm. When, when you're looking at a, a story as sweeping as this one, uh, over thousands of years of history, how do you decide what stays in and what, what stays on the cutting room floor? Yeah, that's the whole story, isn't it? That's the <laughs> essence of, of what it is. I live in New Hampshire, and we collect maple syrup here. And to make it, you, you have to have 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. And I would say that the kind of documentary filmmaking that we do is not dissimilar from that 40 to 1 ratio. And a lot of it, the story will tell you what it means. A lot of things you exert on it and, and try to do, sometimes it's limited by what you have. Fortunately, you know, we have lots of paintings and drawings and archives and photographs and music and testimony and scholars and Native Americans who are also scholars and Native Americans, you know, who are poets and Native Americans who are park rangers. Um, and so lots of different tribes are represented. And, and we also were able to film Buffalo uh, live today. So we have a sense in a very real way of their magnificence uh, and, and of interest I, perhaps to your listeners. We filmed at Custer State Park and Kanata and the wild idea Cheyenne River Ranch and the Bad River Ranch that's Ed Turner's Ranch and the Black Hills, and we just found buffalo in the Black Hills. Um, It was like a wonderful project of a lifetime to be able to reacquaint ourselves with these magnificent animals and to tell, you know, a, a, a story that is certainly in large measure a tragedy, but as I was saying, also one that can be inspirational. It's a parable of de-extinction, and I think perhaps as climate change um, works on us, we will begin to see many other large charismatic fauna, as the biologists call the buffalo, um, begin to go extinct, and that we have a model for how people can can save um, this most beautiful, beautiful animal of creation. Hmm. Now, now that this, this project is ready for the, the, the rest of the world to see. What do you hope viewers take away from the American buffalo, and, and how do you hope it might inform our kind of idea of that American identity? Yes, that's a really good question. I think it is tied in with our identity. We, when we decided that the frontier was closed in, in 1893, the famous essay by Frederick Jackson Turner, it caused a lot of crises. And I think we began to think about saving more land for national parks, setting aside for forests, setting aside for wildlife refugees, saving the buffalo specifically. And 
1913, we came out with the Indian head nickel, and on the back was a buffalo. We know who it was. The sculptor who created it said he wanted a coin that no one would mistake for any other country's coin, and the symbol that was coming to be us, both uppercase the U.S. and lowercase us in an intimate way, were two entities, the Native American and the buffalo that we'd spent the last century trying to get rid of, uh, which prompted George Horse Capture Jr. from the Fort Belknap Reservation, a small tribe called the Anahi, to say, you know, do you have to destroy the things you love? Mm -hmm. And so I think at the heart of what we want is to let that question sound. We're storytellers. We're not trying to advocate. We're not putting our thumb on it. We don't have a political agenda. We we do, once it's done, it's really yours to, to be changed or not to be changed, to be changed significantly or changed at the edges. I do think that we began to see as we were finishing the film that perhaps we had just done the first two acts of a three-act play and that the third act was being written essentially now by Native peoples and NGOs and ranchers and ordinary citizens who are sort of interested in the bison and whether having saved it from extinction, is that enough to have a, a zoo animal or one behind a corral? And could we not, do we have the will to create large um, ecosystems that would permit them, in the words of the song, give me a home where the buffalo roam and the deer and the antelope play? And I guess we're not tilting one way or the other, but personally myself, I would hope that that would be ca the case. Um, uh, Clay Jenkinson, the historian from up the road in, in North Dakota, who we've interviewed for a couple of other films, said it really, you know, hopefully towards the end of the film that, you know, we almost blinked this thing out, and that seemed un-American because the bison sort of stood for us, the buffalo stood for us, uh, like American with a capital A. And now he thinks in his lifetime he's going to see that moment when they are you know, in these great wildlife corridors running wild and free. They need, they need some space. It isn't that much, uh, but it's more than what they have right now. Hmm. I've been speaking with filmmaker Ken Burns about his upcoming documentary, The American Buffalo. Ken Burns, thank you for your time and for this work. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The American Buffalo by Ken Burns premieres on SDPB-TV on Monday, October 16th at 7 Central, 6 Mountain. And now, in addition to The American Buffalo, SDPB has created a companion piece to add to your watch list. Tatanka includes insights into the relationship between the buffalo and the indigenous people of South Dakota. Tatanka airs on Thursday, October 19th at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB-TV. Now let's take a moment for a good harvest. Todd Yackley of Yackley Ranches manages thousands of acres of cropland near Oneida. He tips the odds for a good crop year in his favor by using no-till techniques. That's a technique that preserves crop stubble as mulch for the next year. He has other tricks up his sleeve to give his crops their best chance in the central South Dakotan landscape. Todd includes drought-resistant crops like sunflowers in his rotation. And he gives thanks for what rain does fall each year. Take a listen. We saw in our wheat this year, we were really dry early. And we did have a few fields in a certain parts of the county that caught a couple early rains that 10 miles away didn't catch any rain. 
it made a huge 30, 40 bushel difference, yeah. just, just a, a half inch of rain at the right time, so. I've heard that term come from a million dollar rain? Yeah, we're there right now. Okay. I mean, it's. Now, because of those, the, the needs of the various crops, you have a specific rotation, one crop over another for the next year. What's that typically like? Well, uh, like after the sunflower crop, we'll put, we'll put spring wheat in it. Okay. Um, we have done corn on top of sunflowers. Sunflowers, spring wheat, and we'll no everything is no-till. It's the only way it works in central South Dakota to raise a good crop is it has to be no-till and it, most of the time it's gotta be behind wheat. And so then after the corn crop, we'll go, we'll stack two years of corn or sunflowers and or soybeans. We're standing on top of corn stubble from last year. What happens, why that works so well here? It's, it's just a game, been a game changer for us. And corn might not look the best as the neighbor's corn that was done with tillage or whatever. Well, you don't combine corn in June. You know, just wait till July, August, you know, and typically the no-till, that's where it shines because we get dry and hot in July and August and that extra moisture will just make a crop for us. You actually harvest the wheat to maintain the stubble because that has its own advantage. Absolutely, we, we use stripper headers, which stripper headers will leave the stubble. If the weed is this tall, it'll just basically clips a little bit of the head off. So we've got this nice residue standing out there. So that'll catch snow all, all winter. In the spring, after we, after we plant, you know, it typically starts to lay down. We get a big rain event, it'll hold the moisture. It won't let that water run and move as much. It's extremely important to have that kind of residue and that type of material laying on the ground yeah. when we're in a corn crop. I mean, if you're in a neighborhood and you mulch your flowers or you mulch your trees, I mean, that's basically what you're doing is you're mulching that corn crop with last year's wheat stubble. Absolutely. Yeah. Todd is featured in the latest Dakota Life episode, Greetings from Oneida. The broadcast premiered yesterday and is streaming now at sdpb.org. There's more in the moment after the break here on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. How can you quantify what the arts bring to your community? How do you sum that up in just a number? Well, the Arts and Economic Prosperity 6 study identified just that. In South Dakota, the nonprofit arts and culture industry generated $363 million in economic activity last year. Kellen Boyce is the executive director of the South Dakota, or excuse me, Sioux Falls Arts Council. She joins me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And also in the Black Hills, Jackie Dietrich is executive director of the Rapid City Arts Council. She joins us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Jackie, welcome. Hi, Jackie. And uh, Randy Cohen is the vice president of Research Americans for the Arts. His organization publishes the Arts and Economic Prosperity Study. He joins us now by phone from the East Coast. Randy, welcome to you as well. Thank you, Jackie. Great to be here. Hi, everyone. Uh, Randy, I wonder if we can start with you to explain overall the purpose of this survey to listeners. Why was it important to quantify uh, this this meaning of the arts? Well, you know, it's it's a way to change uh, the conversation about the arts and, and think about the arts a little differently. You know, um, 
we all love the arts, right? They beautify our cities, our towns. They bring joy to residents. Um, they create the places we want to live in and work in. But the fact is, arts organizations are businesses, and they have an impact on the economy. And so that $363 million of economic activity, which is spending by organizations and event-related by spending by their audiences, you know, when you go to an arts event, you know, you don't just sneak out, see the show, and run home, right? Eh, maybe you have pay for parking, and you have dinner, and go out for dessert afterwards, and come home and pay the babysitter. There's all that economic activity, which is good, uh, good for our local businesses and statewide uh, in South Dakota. $363 million of economic activity that supports 6,054 jobs across the state. So you know, arts, food for the soul but also putting food on the table for more than 6,000 households in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. And this, this study looks at uh, a handful of communities in South Dakota. Kellen, I'll start with you in Sioux Falls and then move to Jackie West River. But talk to us about some of these events that we're looking at in this study. What, what are we talking about when we talk arts events in Sioux Falls? Well, and it's it's kind of, to keep it clear, it's these are nonprofit arts yes. organization hosted events. So um, say the Levitt or something being hosted at the Washington Pavilion um, there's a lot of different festivals, so downtown Riverfest, things like that, were ones where we were collecting data for these surveys. Yeah, and Jackie, how about you on uh, in Rapid City? Oh, we cover our entire art sector. Um, event activity included theater, music, art fairs, exhibits. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder, and I'm not sure exactly who to direct this to. Maybe Randy will start with you, and if we need to pass off, we can. Uh, how do we how do we go about collecting this information? Well, um, working with our local partners there, Sioux Falls, Aberdeen, Yankton, uh, Rapid City, Brookings, um, we surveyed those nonprofit arts and culture organizations and asked them about their 2022 uh, spending. Um, and what we found statewide is uh, the uh, 118 organizations that returned their survey had $64 million in spending. And Arts organizations are businesses. You know, again, we think of them as these wonderful community amenities, and they are, but the fact is they employ people locally, they purchase goods and services from other businesses, they pay the printer, they pay, you know, utility bills to keep those places warm in, in winter. Um, and then that's how we get the organizational spending. But the real value add uh, with the arts is that event-related spending. And so um, we go to a whole range of arts and culture events uh, and ask people about how much did you spend on meals and transportation, and maybe there was some lodging and that type of thing. Uh, so there was a total of 3,290 audience uh, interviews, so huge sample across the state, and each community did their own there, and they'll talk, you know, colleagues can talk about that, but statewide, $299 million of economic activity. Mm -hmm. Jackie Dietrich, talk to us about uh, kind of your process in, in Rapid City, and maybe if uh, what, if anything, surprised you from what you found. Well, Arts South Dakota brought us together. They're a wonderful advocacy service organization here in the state, and with their assistance and really guiding us with Americans for the Arts, in the city of Rapid City, we did 800 audience member surveys at various events in conjunction with 23 different arts nonprofits. And so it's only a, a lens on the nonprofit sector, um, not including, for example, the Monument Arena or 
many, many of the for-profit entities that are here in Rapid City. And I know nationally, just for context, we're still really facing challenges. Audiences have been slow to return since COVID, and generally revenue is down. But we learned that in Rapid City, we generated $240 million in economic activity in 2022 through arts and culture that's local here in Rapid City. And I, I'm actually sitting here in the studio with my We Mean Business t-shirt on as a former <laughs> small business owner. It's really important that people know the degree to which that we, we influence commerce. It was $183 million in event spending above ticket prices. And people really are, as Randy said, making an outing of it. So when we in Rapid City are investing in arts and culture, we're really investing in an industry that's creating economic opportunity that does build a more livable community, but also adds, you know, Dinner, clothing, childcare, lodging, $57 of spending per arts event, per person going right back into our community. And I think as arts, not just as arts administrators, but as local employers and chamber members and businesses that pay service providers to keep up in operations, it's surprising to learn that our city's arts nonprofits are major employers supporting 3,000 jobs and $106 million in personal income to our residents. And that's about $29 million in tax revenue back to the government. So that's just really exciting to see in Rapid City. And of course, here where tourism is such an important part of our cultural plan, 23% of our attendees were non-local and they spend $96 per person per event. So it's really a major focus of our mayor to focus on non-local non spending as an economic development uh, tool, but arts are incredible leverage. 56% yeah. of local non-local attendees say the event was their primary purpose of their visit. Yeah. Kellen, I'm wondering in, in Sioux Falls um, if you're seeing kind of that same distinction between local and non-local, or what does that look like here in Sioux Falls? I mean, I echo a lot of what Jackie's saying in mm -hmm. her study, and as we're kind of looking at these and kind of dissecting the numbers, it's really important to kind of know, too, that we just came out of a really long <laughs> pandemic. And so it's really positive to see that, I mean, the growth, and we've been doing this, this is our third study with the American for the Arts, um, so our uh, third total study. And this last one, I think we had a little bit of a, Randy, you could quote me, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was about a two-year lapse from when we would normally would have done this to kind of keep it up to par. But I feel really confident that the numbers that we're reflecting right now are showing growth, even with the kind of disparities that we had had, um, and even knowing that some of our arts nonprofits didn't make it through the pandemic, which is, you know, a, a hard hit, but we're still, the arts profit, uh, nonprofit sector is really strong. The fact that we are a large, you know, if you brought all the uh, organizations together, we're a large employer of the state, uh, that's still really positive news. So um, also that we also have other opportunities now in Sioux Falls that we didn't have seven years ago when we did the previous study uh, being the Levitt mm -hmm. and kind of even talking about that number, but we've, we've brought in so many more people to the, to the arts, um, with, you know, not a, bar, a barrier or a bar to entry of like having to pay, which is exciting too, just, just to see that just so we always kind of keep those things in mind when we're looking at these. And I, I, I love the conversation about the arts are an economic impact for our community, and that's so important. But it's like there's a lot of different factors when I look at these numbers, especially when you look at the diversity of things to do now here in Sioux Falls. It's not like you can pick a weekend and say there's nothing going on because that's not true. Right. And I just have to say, as someone who lives and works in Sioux Falls right across the street from the Levitt, that has completely altered my 
relationship with nonprofit arts in in the city. Um, Randy, I, I wonder if you can speak to that piece of you know how often we're looking at these numbers and what kind of overall trends you've seen. Sure. Well, um, as the name of the study implies, Arts and Economic Prosperity Six. You know, we've been doing them for thirty years, and about every five years, um, we had that little uh, that whole pandemic thing. You know, um, which uh, took us out of our rhythm by a couple of years, and so. Um, you know, this study looks at 2022 uh, overall. Um, but, you know, the the data are just so impressive. You know, even, um, uh, I mean, you know, just, you know, just talking about right there in, in Sioux Falls, you know, 38% of the attendees coming, you know, from outside the county spending, you know, $59 per person per event. So while we see in the, you know, nationally, I mean, I, I could sort of say nationally, not, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, everyone's mileage differs, but um, audiences have been a little slow to come back. Um, they haven't walked away, just, you know, they're sort of, for a lot of organizations, about two thirds, three quarters of the way back. But, you know, the pandemic itself was just absolutely brutal uh, for the arts, um, and especially the nonprofit arts industry, um, our performing uh, places and presenting uh, museums, effectively 99% of them, uh, had to cancel performances, cancel exhibitions, close. Um, you know, Johns Hopkins was tracking employment at nonprofits. Nonprofit arts organizations had five times the job loss of the average nonprofit organization. Uh, even the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis called out uh, the arts, especially the performing arts, as just one of the hardest uh, hit sectors. Um, yet, what we've seen and starts to emerge in the data is that the arts really helped communities get out of the pandemic uh, in a couple of ways, right? Because we're like, we're hearing about these incredible audience um, spending data, you know, um, isolation, loneliness, you know, was skyrocketing, uh, mental health issues uh, during the pandemic. And yet arts and culture gets us you know, into public spaces and having shared experiences. Um, and as the data show, you know, attendees are going to local businesses. And so this was uh, a way to activate, uh, it was vital income, you know, for local merchants. And so, um, you know, I think the arts uh, really helped uh, a lot of communities work their way out of the pandemic. Um, and while 2022 wasn't necessarily out of it yet, um, Still, such uh, robust economic numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, again, statewide, three hundred sixty-three million dollar industry, over six thousand jobs, fifty-two million dollars going back to local, state, uh, and federal government. And you know, arts are kindling for the economy. I mean, that's one of the things here. You know, small investment, big returns, and we see that at a local level. And you know, you're hearing that with uh, um, you know these numbers uh, uh, as well as the state level and national level as well. Yeah. And I want to take a quick moment to point out that in addition to these economic numbers, there were also some questions for respondents about their personal value of the arts in their communities. Overall, 91% of respondents in South Dakota mentioned a sense of community or neighborhood pride in arts offerings, and 88% said they would feel a sense of loss if these cultural opportunities were not made available. In just the couple moments we have left, and I think we'll just have time for Kellen, I wonder if you can speak to what you hope to do with these numbers now. 
Well, I think it's just such an interesting time in our community and like growth. Um, and when we're looking at the arts and, you know, what our focus is through the Sioux Falls Arts Council is really finding those gaps and where we're recognizing gaps within the arts community is, is taking this data and kind of bringing it back to the community and saying, you know, we, we really like to talk about the arts a lot in the community. How can we reinvest some of the funding that we're seeing that's kind of floating around? How can we kind of focus it a little more to, to uplifting the arts? Maybe even finding more of a ground level approach to funding the arts. Because we know there's so much happening right now, but looking at, at bringing that money back to, back to those uh, even budding organizations that are going to grow to be the next Pavilions or Levitt's. So. Yeah. Uh, our guests have been Kellen Boyce with the Sioux Falls Arts Council, Jackie Dietrich with the Rapid City Arts Council, and Randy Cohen with Research Americans for the Arts, unpacking the study of economic impact of the arts in South Dakota. And you can check out individual community impacts at artssouthdakota.org. Thank you to all of our guests. That's our time for our program today. On the next In the Moment, we're dedicating the whole hour on Monday to tribal prenatal health, and we hope you'll join us for that conversation. In the Moment's executive producer is Kara Hetland. Our host is Lori Walsh. Our producers, Ellen Kester and Ari Youngman. Our engineer is Colton Nicholson. I'm Jackie Hendry sitting in today for Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>